My guest today has been described by colleagues as having a unique ability to bring a very authentic and confident presence into every sales interaction. As a result, clients are quick to trust him, which leads to larger deals and better long-term relationships. Another colleague says, I have been blessed to work some of the greatest leaders out there, and although they share many winning characteristics, serving their people and leading from the front are two that stick out the most to me. Charlie has both of these. Another colleague says, Charlie consistently overachieved his sales targets, received many sales awards and much recognition. I can't say enough good things about Charlie. And finally, Charlie has a charisma that is rare in someone his age. Charlie Luck, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. I'd love to know who these people are. This They're on your LinkedIn. No, it's a pleasure I, to be here. I didn't here. have to really think too far. <laughs> yeah, it's a pleasure yeah. to be here. I really appreciate you having me. Yeah. LinkedIn is great for that, by the way. Anytime you go back and you read those things, it kind of gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. Absolutely. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, so tell me a little bit, for Charlie, for people who don't know you, tell me a little bit about who you are, where you're from originally, and what, what that was like growing up in the part of the world you started out life in. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so uh, Charlie Locke had been been in sales for about 20 years, but I originally grew up in Hamilton, Ontario, which is just about an hour west of uh, Toronto, and um, <clears throat> spent most of my life here. I uh, did travel around the world for a little bit when I was in my 20s and grew my hair long and, you know, um, made some mistakes and got some perspective on life. And um, and then I did spend some time in Calgary, actually, out in the Canadian Rockies for a while and worked in oil and gas software for a while. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I've, uh, you know, growing up in uh, Hamilton and then in the Niagara region of Canada, um, I was lucky to, uh, I think, get um, exposure to the, the tech scene pretty early in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, that was just sort of starting to bud in, um, you know, the Waterloo-Toronto corridor that we call it, um, which is really becoming a big tech hub in North America. Uh, the only thing, Charlie, people heard in that was, I grew my hair long and I made some mistakes and learned from them. <laughs> Perhaps you could share with us and give us a sense of as much as you're comfortable. <laughs> <what that was. laughs> well, I'll tell you some of the, the, the good stories. So I actually started my career uh, right out of university at a company called Macromedia. And so you might remember them, Paul. I remember them, actually. Yeah, they were a partner of a small startup I worked for back in the very late 90s, early yeah. 2000s, actually, yeah. So really a, a pioneer company um, when it comes to when it came to the web, you know, which was really starting to take form in the late 90s. Mm. Um, and you might recall the Flash Player. That was Macromedia. It's just now, uh, you know, the Adobe Flash Player. And it's actually just been uh, deprecated altogether now. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I worked there for about uh, three years right out of university and um, was lucky to get into some, you know, closing roles pretty quickly and, you uh, uh, then they got bought by Adobe and I, I took the opportunity to actually leave the company and just go travel and take a, take a severance package at the time. And it was, it was a, one of the best decisions I ever made in my life, to be honest with you. I spent a year uh, traveling through Canada um, for a while, hitchhiking across British Columbia, and then spent some time in Japan, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and Australia, New Zealand. And I think, you know, for me, that time uh, allowed me to to really get i was all by myself i, I traveled alone 
um, to get really good perspective on uh, the people that were most important in my life. I think when you travel like that for a long time, you you think about all the people back home quite a bit, and you realize uh, the relationships that are ultimately most important to you. And I came back with a basically a different perspective on uh, mm-hmm. you know the people that I was going to spend time with and the people that maybe wasn't going to spend time with. And probably in a lot of ways shaped, you know, my who I was as a salesperson too, as, as far as um, mm. you know, being my authentic self um, in my job, but also in my personal life. Mm. Um, so I, I no, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I can. I'm holding you to it, Charlie. I'm holding you to it. Yeah, um, but uh, I mean, you know, I. I um, I, I, I learned a lot about other cultures, you mm. know, along the way. And, um, and some of those mistakes I would say I, I, I made through, you know, was, was um, not being as aware about mm. uh, the nuances of those cultures. And, yeah. um, and I, I, you know, those are, I don't know if I have a specific example to give you, but, um, but that was for me a, a big a, a yeah. big moment in my life as far as how I relate to people and how I communicate with people, because in a lot of cases you couldn't like in Vietnam, not a lot of folks spoke English. So sure. um, you learn the universal language of hands and, mm. and facial expressions and things mm. like that and, and how not to relate to people in some cases. Um, um, yeah. Other than the differences in culture, maybe you could share with me perhaps how your perspective on life and your place of the world changed as a result, because I can imagine that kind of experience is a life-changing experience. It is. Yeah, I think when I was early in my sales career, as early in my life, I had a, a feeling of trying to please everyone and trying to be liked by everyone and, and really um, not handling it well when someone maybe didn't like me or, or you know, or there was some interaction or what have you that uh, maybe I, I, I came across the wrong way or whatever. And I was always trying to please people and be liked by people. And I think what I realized in that uh, time away was that, you know, I, I gained a lot more confidence in who I am as a person and was much more choosy, I guess, with the people that I was going to be spending time with and much more confident just who I was um, as a good person, you know, and, um, and it really shaped, I think, a lot of who I was professionally and personally as far as maybe not trying to please every single person you meet because we're, we're all just a little bit different and, and that's yeah. okay. Yeah. So maybe then talk to me a little bit about your early life experience in terms of who and what influenced you the most, even before you ever got to travel. Yeah. It would be my um, two people in my life, my father, um, who started a uh, direct sales company, kind of like Avon in vitamins and uh, makeup. He started Shackley Canada uh, out of his kitchen in the early 70s. And so I got to see him build that company from just himself to, you know, 300 people by the mid 90s. Um, and, and I think for me, you know, what I what I learned from from him was uh, the value of, so I, I would go into his office every day and, you know, not every day, but I would go into his office and, and he would bring me around and introduce me to, you know, various different people. He was the president of the company at this time when it was pretty big and all that sort of stuff, but he knew every single person's name. He knew their partner's name, their wife or their husband's name. He knew their kids' names. We would go down to the shipping and receiving area, you know, and he knew every single person there and would stop to talk to everyone. And um, I think that, 
inherently just gave me a perspective on what leadership is, you know, at a very basic level of, of part of my French, but just giving a shit about people, actually genuinely giving a shit about people. And, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I just thought that's what it was and that's how you do it. And, and that's who he was. And so I brought a lot of that, obviously that naturally wired me a certain way when I got mm -hmm. into leadership positions. Um, yeah. and, and just, you know, it wasn't hard for me because that's, that that gave me you know i already had this curiosity sort of wired into me to really understand people and get to know people and learn about their backgrounds mm. and learn who they are mm. um so he yeah, was a big was, one yeah yeah sorry and there was a second i'll come back to i had a question but i'll come back in a moment you had a second person you said yeah um rob burgess so he was the ceo of macromedia actually at the time so he was a canadian guy that uh um you know, at uh, I got lucky in my in my high school years. My my girlfriend at the time got uh, a job as a nanny for this, you know, this uh, well off guy up and uh, that had a cottage in 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 northern Ontario where um, he would bring his kids up every summer. But he lived down in Silicon Valley. But he was a Canadian guy and he brought his family back every year. So I was you know 19 years old, not really knowing what I was going to do in my life in 1999, and you know I got to pick the brain of a a CEO of Fortune 500 company and, and um, basically said, you know, how do I get to be where you are? And, and, you know, what was your journey like and learned about his whole path from regs to riches. And, and um, he was extremely influential on me, um, mainly because he said, start in sales. Um, sales is where you should start if you want to become a CEO. I mean, all every CEO should understand sales. And, um, and then he would obviously over the next few years, teach me about sales, about negotiation. He would teach me about leadership. I would see how he's interacting, but then he gave me, you know, internships. So I was, you know, cold calling Excel lists of 4,000 people, um, you know, with a touchstone phone. That was, that was, that was the tools I had in 1998, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, he was incredibly influential. Just put me on this path of, of tech and sales. Yeah, that was, that was quite a fortunate um, happenstance absolutely for any young person to have the fact you recognized it though as well is is kudos to you because that's the kind of thing that you might look back on and go i wish i'd made more of it but it sounds to me like you really did uh he did really make an impression on you um you just something you were talking about earlier when you're talking about your father and the fact that he knew everybody's name and their partner's name and their birthdays and was clearly liked by people i i can almost visualize him, I, I'm obviously not met the man, but like I can visualize somebody in that, you know, going around and talking to people about their day and chatting to them and just making sure they were okay. Yeah. And you watching this would have given you a sense of, you know, he's your own model. That's how you interact with people. But you didn't have the benefit of the hard knocks that he would have had having started on his kitchen table. And therefore, maybe when you were talking about the, the the fact that you you did you know when somebody didn't like you or didn't give you the feedback you were expecting that that didn't feel good yeah. as whereas somebody who had the hard knocks that would have been just water off a duck's back and yeah. and 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 the traveling gave you that because i've got to imagine traveling that you're on your own a lot and really nobody gives a damn about you when when you're traveling that much yeah. um, you meet people and it's nice but at the end of the day you get to sleep in a bed because you can pay for it. And if you can't, you sleep on a bench. Yep. Um, and uh, so I was just interesting to see that connection perhaps between that, that sometimes we protect people 
inadvertently, and I'm not really talking about, you know, my own children, because you want to be as protective as a parent, but you really got to push them out and in a safe way, introduce them to those hard knocks that you're not doing them any favors um, without that. And, and to go travel and to have those experiences because Absolutely. it's the yin and yang, I guess. Absolutely. It, there's actually, it's funny. So I, my, when my dad retired in the early mid nineties from that, you know, that, that, that company in that role, um, him, my mother and him started a bed and breakfast in Niagara Lake near Niagara Falls, Canada. Mm. We moved down there. And so, um, I actually lived with strangers from 14 to 18 years old, um, until I went away to university. So every day I'd wake up in my, and go downstairs and meet people that just random strangers in my house. And I always go back to that too, as you know, a unique experience I had in my life that certainly shaped who I am. And, you know, because obviously I would just literally need to break the ice with strangers every day in my house and, or choose not to see people, which is, you know, an option I had, but I just enjoyed meeting new people and, and, and connecting with every different type of person from all walks of life, uh, mm. because I was just put in that setting. Mm. And having read, and there, there were a lot, there was a lot more on it. Shows some of the uh, testimonials that are on your LinkedIn page. It, it now makes a lot of sense to me that 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 threads in in your link. You know, people say about you in terms of you caring about people, but also being good with people and quick to build rapport and relationships. Um, I can see, yeah, it's a, yeah. that's a. You often you often see that with people also I think who move frequently as well. Um, they'll often end up like a lot of top comedians, for example. If you look into their background, often moved around a lot as as kids and had to build rapport quickly with kids. Otherwise, they'd be right. picked on and they had to be liked and all of those skills that you develop. Uh, but moving away from the couch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank goodness. Don't yeah, do therapy. <laughs> Oh, sorry, that's Siri. <laughs> I should have switched that off. Um, talk to me about the transition. When I say into sales, it was clear. It's clear now, listening to you, that you're cut out to sales, and that having that advice from. Bur I know you said Burgess. What was his first name? Yeah, Rob. Rob Burgess. Rob, Rob Burgess was uh, really there was there was no other path, I guess. Um, talk to me though, maybe what surprised you most about sales when, when, when you had to carry a target? Um, I, I guess how I would react, I mean, you, you get tested pretty quickly, I think in your early years in sales around your um, morals and um, how you're gonna react to different types of pressure that you inherently are gonna receive when you have a very quantifiable target that dictates your performance. Unlike any other job in the world, you know, where, you know, perhaps there's a bit more of a, a qualitative or objective view of essentially what, whatever your performance might be, um, or sorry, subjective, um, you know, the, the sales world is really, it's just like, you're, you're facing your number right in front of you and you're looking at it every day and there's a, there's a clock ticking and you get tested pretty early on, on how you're going to react in customer situations uh, in order to hit your number, but also do the right thing for the customer. And um, that for me was a, a big learning curve because I think I, 
you know, I started to lean into what I call being a chameleon, you know, which is what some people in sales can tend to lean into being a being a salesperson, you know, like having this all like this alter ego and this different persona when they're selling and then being completely different when they're in their personal life. And I realized how taxing that is on you mentally and physically and um, not sustainable in, in, in many respects. And, and so but I you know, I, I thought that's what sales was. I thought that's what I, you know, I needed to be. I needed to be this closer or this guy that's hitting his number and, you know, and um, and doing it in a way that would sometimes challenge my own morals um, of what mm -hmm. I feel like is right. And so I wouldn't say I would, you know, do bad deals and things like that, but certainly, you know, um, saying things or discounting or whatever it might be to get the deal done. And I think that was the most most eye-opening thing and so when i talk to young sellers now you know folks that have just come out of school and um or or you know folks in sdr nation um you know i i really talk about that a lot about just who you are as a person and and how to harness all of those beautiful things that make up who you are and make that you know what comes across in sales now there's a bunch of frameworks and tools certainly stuff like sandler that i think that's why i love sandler honestly so much personally for me, it was the first sales process that allowed you to be yourself um, in the sales process, you know, where you're not saying words, uh, there's no scripts, there's frameworks and structures that you can be yourself inside of. Um, and so that's, that's what I think is, uh, was yeah. for me, I think one of the biggest learning experiences. You had a wonderful, I read an article you had on, uh, or a post on, on LinkedIn, and it was a wonderful cold call introduction. It was a wonderful pattern interrupt because it, was, it, sp it speaks to that vulnerability. And when I saw it, I thought, ah, I, could, I, can, see, I can see you live it out. And it was the bit about um, when so, you, know, you say, how are you? And, and they, they say, how are you? Oh, not so great. You know, I had a bad night's sleep. The kids were up, you know, up cried. The baby was up awake, something like that. I can't remember yeah. the exact text, but, but I, I thought that's that's somebody who is uh who, who's living that and is not afraid to, or, or not trying to wear this mask and it, exactly and able to be real and authentic uh and that's a superpower you know that that yeah, is a weapon is, you can is, wield if, if you actually are just yeah. really really honest I, I remember i had this big argument with uh, a colleague at salesforce when i was working there for a while about how he was training his reps to be product experts and and, and really to come across, you know, extremely confident, I'm an expert and, and, uh, and how that, you know, is going to help you move the, the deal forward because you're going to give the customer this sense that you're the, you know, the trusted advisor. When, you know, what for me, it just wasn't reality though, because we weren't, we had a, we had so many different products we could sell at Salesforce and most of the, the team, the members were in the early stages of their sales career to sort of try to get them to pretend to be someone else was extremely difficult and and then would just come across rife with inauthenticity and reduce the trust where you know one of my i remember a story one of my my first week at salesforce and my rep was just so nervous on the phone he's like i have this conversation this deal conversation coming up can you come on in with me and and he was telling me about why he's nervous and he's trying to pretend like he's he knows what he's talking about but he just has no idea about all the tools and all the, everything that salesforce can provide and he just doesn't get it and he's really who's really insecure. And I said, don't worry, man, I'll show you how you can, you know, let me show you what it can be like. And, and so we get on the phone call with the customer and the first thing 
you know, they said, how are you doing? And I was like, oh, you brought in my manager, Charlie, here. And I said, yeah, hey, how are you? Nice to meet you. So just so you know, this is my first week at Salesforce. I, I don't know that much about the product, to be honest with you. I, uh, I've been in sales for a long time, and I've used Salesforce myself, but and I've been in your situation as a customer. But, um, you know, I just started here. I moved away from Calgary, came back to Toronto. I'm actually sleeping on an air mattress right now um, because our bed hasn't even arrived yet. Um, but I just wanted to set that context so that you understand. And the look on my <laughs> my sales rep's face was just stunned. I was like, "How the hell are you tell you don't know? You're telling them you don't know anything about the product. You just started the company and you're sleeping on an air mattress. Like, why would you do that? You know?" And and, and I think it, I just really wanted to make give it a give an example of how by doing that you can actually just build a a great relationship and, and a trusting relationship, a relatable relationship with people. And it just removes the filter, right? It just allows people to be much more comfortable telling you what's going on. Yeah, it's when they see you as human and not a role. That's exactly. when you practice. And it's amazing because people come into organizations as a human. And then somehow or another, they end up putting on this suit. And what you're saying is clearly is, the, the, there's no need for the suit. Just just be yourself. Now, obviously, there's there's a line in terms of how you conduct yourself, but... Uh, the the philosophy of of just being yourself and and being relatable is, is such a powerful thing. It really is. Talk to me then about this this journey from sales rep to manager. Some people I've spoken to found that a difficult transition. Uh, they 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 were good at reps. They stepped into this other role that was strange to them, and it, they took their time or took time to find our feet. I was curious to know what it was like for you. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I, I think every person as an individual contributor goes through a, uh, a phase of having great managers and having poor managers. And um, I was lucky to have a couple of good ones. I was, I was unlucky to have a few crappy ones. And um, I think for me, when I, you know, part of my motivation to get into leadership is I, I, I felt like I could take all the great things from my great leaders that I've worked with in my career and my mentors and things like that and um, and really showcase those those types of lessons that I learned from those managers, but also take the things that I, you know, that I didn't like about other managers and change the way leadership should be done. And, and for me, a big part of that was, um, you know, fear-based motivation versus reward-based motivation. And, you know, I, I think a lot of leaders over the last, leadership in general, I think over the last 15 years has really started to move much closer uh, towards reward-based motivation um, where it should be. Inherently, I always say, you know, people get into sales because they like the idea of going after some carrot, you know, they like the idea of getting paid differently than the person mm. next to them. And it's, and when I got into sales in the early 2000s, there was still was a lot, a lot of fear based motivation that was going on, mm. you know, you don't hit your number. And then this is going to happen, don't do this or whatever. And, 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 and um, <clears throat> it just didn't work for me. And it, and, and, it, and it wasn't it just like it didn't work for me, I could see how it didn't work for other people. Because I was just like, this is at odds with who these people are. Most of the population is motivated by fear. Um, but in sales, I think most of those folks choose sales because they like the reward. They want, they want to be able to go after that carrot. And so it was just at odds with who these people are. Why would you lead a, a group of people that are mostly reward motivated with fear? 
And mm. um, I think for me, that was uh, the exciting thing that I really honed in on when I was early in my managerial career. And certainly, yeah, there was a lot of learning moments for me um, in the first few years of, um, you know, how to how to build close, genuine relationships with your team, but also hold them accountable um, mm. and, and, and but not using fear as that motivator. Um, but but that was the thing that I was on a mm. pursuit to change. I wanted mm. to change that. I wanted to change how leader like how you how you can motivate people yeah. because I saw way too much fear motivation in the world. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's a line here between and what we're talking about is extrinsic motivation versus intrinsic. Because I can imagine if you talk to anybody who's been successful professionally, what drives them very often you'll hear fear of failure. And yeah. it's like there's this, you know, a fire in their belly, a fire under their ass, whatever it is. But even the language is one of moving away from something or a place that I don't want to be in. And that's that's intrinsic. That's that's what kind of gives them energy. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm wondering if, if it's even a good idea to take that away, because that kind of intrinsic motivation, you didn't put it there but it's 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 a powerful source of energy that then what you're doing with with the extrinsic is shaping that with the rewards in terms of where to direct the internal energy is is that what we're talking about absolutely and you know i i shouldn't say that fear as a motivator from an intrinsic perspective to your point is a great motivator and in a lot of ways is you know what motivates me um as well but um, for the person that I'm working with, my coach, my leader, whomever it would be, to not put the time in to understand that about me. And then, to, you know, as you mentioned, shape that and, and, and use that in a positive way to, you know, help you achieve whatever you're looking to achieve in your life. Um, but, um, but not putting the time to get to know me and understand that motivator and, and just but layer on fear on top of it. Um, from an external perspective, to your point, I, I think that it, it's at odds, right? It, it's because it's a very selfish move as a, if a leader is to, you know, use fear without really knowing me. So it's like, you don't know me, man. Or, you know, if I actually haven't had, unfortunately, I haven't had many uh, uh, women as, as as leaders of mine. But, um, but uh, yeah, so that that is a great point, I think. And um, in a lot of ways, it's just because they haven't spent the time to actually get to know your motivations. Yeah. Are targets a, for, a form of fear-based motivation? Um, I, they, they certainly can be used that way. And um, I think um, targets are a really tough thing. You know, they're, they're usually very rarely, I mean, at a company like Salesforce, they were, it was a machine that had been running for 10 to 15 years when I got there. And there was a algorithm and a, and a bunch of really smart people behind it that, you know, set the targets uh, so that they could hit the numbers, but also allow people to, to be successful. Um, but most companies don't have that privilege of that historical data. Mm. And so you're not, <clears throat> you're not building targets based on historical data. Typically, you're basing it more so on what we need to do in the future. And um, it's tough. You know, because you have a board, you have venture capitalists, you have investors and whoever are asking to hit these numbers. And so you have to make that happen in some way or another. And, and um, but if you don't have the strategy or the execution around hiring enough people, um, a good go to market strategy, what have you, 
you might just set targets that are too high. Um, and so <clears throat> it's, uh, in a lot of ways, those targets aren't real because of that, you know, based on the type of company you're at, it's just people are picking numbers based on some target that someone said we need to hit next year. And so you roll all that down, all the reps, and it's just, they become not really that real. So I think for that reason, I tended not to use targets as a, as a motivator. Um, I tended to use learning as, as a motivator, you know, and, you know, yes, we want to hit our targets, but I'm looking for you to be doing this every month. And this is maybe numbers, maybe your metrics, but this is for me, it's just learning. Are you getting better? Are we actually putting things to bed that we know were struggles in the past and you've figured it out and you've learned it? And as long as you keep doing this, the numbers will come. They will always come if you continually keep learning. Um, <clears throat> but if you if you try to shortcut that with just saying like hit your numbers and the person's here on the learning on the learning scale, um, it just never is going to happen. So it's a it's a hack move that basically everyone ends up yeah. Um, losing. Yeah. So what you're saying basically is if you manage the inputs, the outputs will take care of themselves. Exactly. And, and obviously inputs are, are activity based metrics and things like that, that, you know, are important, but yeah. inputs need to be uh, yeah. core competencies, skills and behaviors that, you know, you're working on with your rep. I guess what I'm hearing is that it's not either or because you do need to have targets and also whether they're even the even input targets in terms of learning because if somebody is not pulling their socks up and not making the effort to learn and not growing and also not making their their targets then then there's going to be a very difficult conversation and there should be some fear around that uh, because that's just realistic so it's not a case of either or it's really a case of where do you focus your energy the targets are there but really the the emphasis on on the inputs um yeah. And that then the outputs really are the exception rather than the guiding rule for have you Have you heard about getting it done and doing it right? Have you heard about that quadrant before? No, please tell me. So I learned this at Salesforce and it and it and it's I just think the most simple way to, to frame it all, but on one axis you have getting it done, which mm. is hitting your numbers. So that's you know, doing the thing that your job says you're supposed to do, hit your numbers and that sort of thing. Doing it right is doing all the other things that are you know perhaps inputs into to getting it done but you know how you're enabling yourself um how you're acting how you're um you know how, how you're adopting with the culture how you're putting in your inputs from a, like a daily perspective are you working hard all these intangibles and so in the top right quadrant of that you know when you look at that graph you would obviously think about getting it done and doing it right that's where you want to be you want to be hitting your number and getting there the right way and um, in the bottom left is not doing it right, not getting it done, and that's in a, you're in a bad spot. Now, if you're in that spot, you can ask your reps just to get it done, but maybe not the right way. You know, just like hit your number. I need you to be in the, the that, I don't really care how you do it, and if you're doing it the right way, I just need to get to your number. And it's just a shortcut, and it doesn't, and it, and it's, it might work for a month or two, and it comes with a lot of fear, but inherently that person will burn out. They actually aren't learning. They're doing, you know, things that are challenging their morals, perhaps, or what have you. So the only path to that upper right quadrant is through getting it done, right? Yeah. Or sorry, doing it right. Yeah. Is through that doing it right quadrant. It's okay if you're doing it right, but you're not getting it done. Because if we're in that quadrant, you have a path to doing both. And so it's a, 
that's why I always talk about with my reps is just, you know, where you're at on that quadrant. And, you know, some reps, I can see them hitting their numbers perhaps, but not doing it the right way by stepping on other reps um, mm. to get there or um, by doing shady deals. Or mm. I know that the way they're doing it isn't sustainable. Maybe their territory is good, but they're not actually, you know, there's order taking. They're not actually doing discovery well or what have you. And there's a big risk to the business there. And so I think a lot of managers, not a lot, but some managers try to just push them into that getting it done quadrant when you really should be putting them into the doing it right quadrant first. Get get into the doing it right, start doing the right things, and then you'll get you'll get to a long-term sustainable success. As you were going through it in my head, I was putting little labels in the boxes. And so the top right-hand quadrant was Rockstar, right? Valued yeah. contributor. And in and, and the getting it done, high, doing it right, low, I had son of a bitch, love to fire him, but we can't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I had Pip, and I didn't know where that went on the bottom two boxes. So if somebody's doing it right, not making their numbers, it, you put them on a Pip, or is the Pip for people in the, the, the bottom box, if you like, the, the corner box? Yeah, the pip is in the bottom left, really. You know, I mean, the the way I think about uh, performance management, I guess, is, you know, if you were to look at all of your reps on a scale of A, B, and C, let's say, you know, I ask managers this all the time. Where do you focus your efforts as a manager? Do you focus on your A players, your B players, or your C players? And typically, most people say they're Bs or they're As. Um, and for me, I, I, I've always believed that it's our job to focus on the C's. And, and really what I'm trying to do there is either move them into B and move them out of the bottom left of not doing it right and not getting it done, but just doing it right. Like just, can, can you learn? Can you be coached? Are you self-awareness? Are you resourceful enough? Can you actually start to figure this out on your own? Because um, if you do, there's enough competition in the B's that A's just naturally bubble up. But I'm really honed in on those C's because essentially I'm trying to see if you can move to a B. And if you can't, then we'll have to put you on a PIP. And um, so most of my focus is there of just like moving C. I just don't want anyone in my C bucket. I want to move them into B's or move them out of the business. Mm. Um, and I'm really there. I'm trying to figure out is like, can they learn? Can they learn? Can they be coached? Can they actually just get better marginally every day? And if they can, they'll eventually get to a B or an A. That's a really interesting concept. Because if you're to look at that from a purely from a numbers perspective, from a rational perspective, you'd say you focus your time on your A's and, and some on your B's because just purely, you know, a 5% increase in performance in an A is going to deliver far more than a 5% in performance in a C, right? So just purely based on numbers, you'd say that's where you should focus. But what you're saying is that, yeah, that will kind of take care of itself, the, the A's and the B's. It's the C's is really a, it's a holding pattern, temporary place that maybe nobody should be there for more than three months because you're either going to coach them up or out that, you know, they're in the yeah. wrong role. It's not, they're not bad people or highly competent in other areas, but just this is not right for them. And to do that sensitively, that's a very humanistic approach to management. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, and yeah, sure, you might get five or ten more percent out of your top performers, but you know, I'd rather have a, a bottom performer off my team and another perfor a top performer hired in. I mean, that that that's going to probably give you a much bigger upside than 
um, than giving a little bit out of your top performers. And so, um, and, 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 you know, and having bottom performers, you know, sucks energy out of the top performers yeah, as yeah. well. So, yeah. um, you know, hiring, it's basically when people, you know, are in that C bucket, it's always your fault as a leader. You've either hired the wrong person or you train them poorly. It's one of those two things. It's never that person's fault ever. 100%. It's like you've hired them wrong, the wrong person, or you haven't done a good job of training. That's it. Mm-hmm. And, and we make mistakes. That's fine. We just have to move through those mistakes fast and, mm-hmm. um, and either coach them out of that bucket or move them out of the business, unfortunately, sometimes. Talk to me about SDR Nation. Uh, what motivated you to take on that challenge? Yeah, so, I mean, I, you know, growing up with my dad, that you know, that context, I, I've always had this entrepreneurial itch. And so for the last five or six years, I've been starting, I actually left Salesforce and started my own business. Um, that failed. Uh, it was funny, whenever we talked to VCs about raising capital, you know, they'd, they'd ask me, is this your first startup? And I said, yeah, for sure, you know, and uh, the look of disappointment on their face made me realize that, <laughs> you know, that's not a good thing, you know, and you need yeah. to fail. And uh, so I, I failed at a few things and, and mostly realized in that endeavor that I didn't really have a good handle on product. And I actually wasn't working on things that I was really passionate about. And so when you when you look inwards and think about things that you're extremely passionate about, you know, those two things for me are sales and teaching. Um, so on my mother, my mother is a teacher. My sister is a principal now. My grandmother was a teacher. I, I come from a family of teachers as well. And I, I really enjoy that aspect of my role as a leader, too, in sales. I, I like training people. I like coaching and, and teaching and um, taking complex subjects and, and um, distilling them down into consumable pieces of content that people can learn and understand and apply. And so when you, when you really think about the landscape of sales in general, it always stunned me that there was just no sales degree. Like, why is it that there's a marketing degree? Why is it there's a, I, mean, I have a finance degree, I have a business finance degree, but there was no sales classes or anything like that. And, um, you know, and then at the, on the other side of the equation, you have the SDR role, which is the second most in-demand job in tech right now behind engineers. And yet people that get into that role usually have zero to maybe a little bit of selling experience at some, you know, Best Buy or something like that. Maybe they've been in some other company before, but they typically don't have any sales experience. So it's it's one of these really interesting positions where no one's really prepared for it. So the, the entire success of them being successful in that role all comes down to the company uh, and whether they have a good enablement program in place and onboarding, all that sort of stuff. And then the leaders that they have in place that can actually coach these people and make them ready because they're really coming in raw with no skills. And... Um, so I saw a lot of organizations that would basically, you know, their, their system was hire five and fire one or two, um, uh, because it was too hard to enable them. We'll just see who figures it out. And it, it really, it really bothered me because I, I just don't like the idea of, you know, folks who are interested in sales and, and want to try it as a career path and just get a kind of a they get unlucky and they join the wrong company and they just aren't enabled and don't have, or don't have a great leader perhaps to help them. And, or there's the nature of the company. It's a startup and the CEO is running sales. I mean, that's just very common. You know, he's got, he's got two AEs, two SDRs operations. I mean, it's just hard to have someone focused on that one role. And so, you know, we, we wanted to build a school essentially myself and Michael Galliano, him and I are, are close friends and he's one of the best sellers I've ever met and worked with. And so, um, we looked at all the different 
ways that this is being um, tackled right now, this problem where there is no school for sales, there's actually no training, there's no enablement. And, um, you know, there's a lot of boot camps coming up right now, which are great. I think these are great things that are happening in sales boot camps where you can get certified and, and they get you jobs and then things like SB Academy and FlockJ and, um, and um, pre-hired and all things like they're, they're great boot camps. Um, but at the same time, I was also part of the Revenue Collective Now Pavilion. And I, I saw what they were doing with community, you know, and, and for me, community was the first time that I said, this is actually a, a digital experience that's the most similar to a physical experience that I've ever had, where not only are you taking content in a one to many, you know, perspective, perhaps like with a webinar or a class or some course, but then you get to beat up that content and actually test it out and, and communicate with your peers about how it's going. That's kind of what school is like. That's what school should be. You go into the classroom, you learn, and you go into the courtyard and you talk about it and you, and you discuss it and debate it and, and, and work with it. And, um, and, and so that's why we decided to build essentially this school in the medium of a community, um, which I think is the most um, similar to a physical experience. And so that's what SDR Nation is. We, we, I just want to make sure that every, every kid coming out of university or college that wants to try sales um, has a support net. Um, and, and for the most part, most of the folks in SDR Nation are at small companies, you know, where those companies can't afford an SDR manager. And, um, you know, they're trying their best to make it work. And you, you can't really blame the company, but we just want to give that person a, a support net to make sure that they can they can learn and be successful perhaps because they're not getting it from their company. Yeah. I love the concept of it. I love the, the idea that it's a community and it's something I've been saying for years, ever since I came in contact with inside sales um, was that it's probably the hardest sales job you'll ever do. That if you yeah. can succeed in an SDR or BDR, I'm using both of them interchangeably. Sure. Um, you've really earned your stripes. To me, if, if, if you're an AE and you've got a really good SDR or BDR, your job, your life is easy. you got it made. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's the hardest job. It's the one that will test you, I, I would imagine, more than anything else. Because I've never done an SDR or BDR job solely. I had a job was more like a prying job where they, yeah. you know, you pick, you're picking the phone up, but you're also then, you, there's relief <laughs> when, when you've got somebody who says, yeah, I'll meet you. And now that becomes yeah. the focus. And you can kind of get away from the so many calls every day, the relentless pressure to yeah. find opportunities. So hats off to anybody who does it. And, and it's, it's, it's probably the one sales role more than any others that does need that support community. So, uh, And you look at the best out. AEs in the world and they were top SDRs or top BDRs, you know, 100%. that that's the thing I think a lot of people forget is that if you, you need to do this job and you need to figure it out because you won't be successful as an AE unless you know these skills, you know? Yeah. And so I think uh, it's just so important for your entire development as yeah. a seller in your whole career. Yeah. Tell me what one subject do you think that should be on the school curriculum that isn't you think copywriting things sorry copywriting copywriting yeah it's an interesting one yeah yeah i, I, I think I, we're I, seeing i mean at least from what i'm hearing I, so i coach sdrs every week i you know i have about five hours blocked for half hour meetings with mm. sdrs and um and so i'm hearing their pains on the front line right now about what's going on in the channel of the phone 
that I'm a big fan of. As you know, we're we're old curmudgeon sales guys, so we love the phone. Um, but it's just getting harder and harder. It just simply is. There's no other way around it. The the pickup rates are abysmal. Um, you know, there's all these screeners now in front of uh, phone calls. People are remote, so you can't really get at their 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 phone number really easily. And so, um, a lot of a lot of the energy is now moving into email and obviously social and, and different different type of written channels, um, where you're not just necessarily creating sales content, but you know you need to create actually branding content, marketing content on LinkedIn perhaps. And and you know you see people like Sarah Brazier, for example, who's one of our coaches in SDR Nation. Who has this, you know, twenty-five thousand person following, and and you know, as an SDR, and she's now an AE, but at the time she was an SDR gong. And if you look at what she did to build that, it was literally just writing beautiful copy. Um, she is just an un- and I and I mentioned that to her when we first met. I was just like, where did you learn to write? You know, and she actually has a great story about it, and she talked about her theater background and how she loved to write. But that is who what's that is her superpower in a lot of respects. And it's something that we gloss over quite a bit in, yeah. in um, training SDRs and, and uh, it's yeah. just teaching people how to write. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about this because, again, I was smiling when you said it. <laughs> I looked shocked originally because I misheard you. When I asked you what subject, I thought you said popularity. I said, no, copywriting because I, I, I am a huge valuer of it. I, I know because... When I started out, I used to write my own articles, and I found very quickly, uh, I, I got to know this guy through BNI, who's a copywriter, and I'd send them to him. And I'd send him 800 words, and he'd send me back 500 words that sounded far better than my 800 words without yeah. losing any of the message. And right. I realized in that, and he gave me some tips on it, and you realize what a skill it is. And I think the mistake we make when we train people on writing emails, we, we, we spoon feed them. We say, Here's the first line. Here's the second line, what it should look like. But you're not learning the skill. That's like learning how to learn a language from a phrase book. If you say this language, you know, or this, this phrase, where, where are the toilets? Yeah. Somebody yeah. might point, but that, that's, not, that's not communicating in a language. And I think it's yeah. the same with copywriting. It is, it's, it's, we are seeing the shift. And <laughs> you, you mentioned the fact that, you know, we come from a world where we only had the phone and there's a I have often said to certainly my eldest son you know if you want if you want to get a message pick pick the phone up talk to somebody you'll get an immediate response but I also so I'm still a fan but I also recognize that I don't answer the phone unless I know who's calling me if if I'm expecting a call and I see a strange number I might answer it but then you only get me by accident and so it I think it is there's that factor. I also see it with certainly two of my younger children that they just, they won't use the phone. Even for ordering a pizza, they would rather yeah. go online on their phone and order the pizza than, than speak to somebody. So there's, I think there's a number of confounding factors. And the one way out of it is, if, if, if it is the way you're going to reach people, is just to get good at getting people's attention and then leading them through a... Through a I guess a series, I don't want to call them arguments, but points that lead them to a, a strong call to action. And uh, yep. who, who was that colleague you said that was really good at that? She said she worked at Gong and is now working at SDR Nation. Well, she still works at Gong. She's one of their top AEs there. Uh, her name's Sarah Brazier, B-R-A-Z-I-E-R. And, uh, but she's one of our coaches at SDR yeah. Nation as well. So she yeah. does events for us yeah. and, and coaches reps. And things yeah. like that. I want to give her a shout out because uh, that's... 
maybe, yeah, it's, it's it's direct people to that because I think it'll make your whole life easier because I think I, I read some study that said you have 2.7 seconds to catch somebody's attention in a written piece of communication before they decide to delete it or not. Right. And, 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 and I remember doing this on a, on, a, on a slide and it says you have 2.4 seconds to uh, decide whether you're going to delete it or not. You cannot get to the end of that sentence in under 2.7 yeah. seconds. So it is <laughs> um, interesting. Good one. I like that. We'll add that to the, to the, to the list of uh, things that should be on the school curriculum but aren't. That would make people's yeah. life a lot easier. Uh, tell me a little bit about um, what's next for you in terms of where you want to take us to your nation, what you'd like to be in three, five years' time. Yeah. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, the short term for us is to start structuring the content and, and building more courses and, and mm -hmm. uh and, and bringing partners in. So we've been very careful. Um, you know, community can be tricky in the sense that, you know, as it grows, it can be, it can degrade, right? Inherently, you know, they, they, it's got a bit of a negative network effect, you know? And mm -hmm. so the bigger it gets, the, the less exclusive it can be, uh, the less engagement you might get from your, your community. And so we've been careful about how fast we grow and um but that means just we need to provide more value for our members in the community itself and so things that we and so we weren't big on let's make it huge and do a whole sponsorship play you know because we have a ton of eyeballs that are going to be looking at our content um and partnering with a bunch of external partners in that sense so we're looking at partners that will help us create content um and and provide feedback to the reps um and provide them coaching and, and tactical mm -hmm. advice and so we're going to be, you know, over the next year, um, launching courses, but also launching spaces where, you know, uh, SDRs can talk to some of the smartest minds in the industry around cadences from companies that are really strong that build, you know, have cadencing software, uh, companies that are, you know, companies like Lavender right now, for example, that are doing uh, that you can tack onto your Gmail and show you what good copy looks like and help you write emails better. Um, and, and, and actually having SDRs be able to talk to people at those companies and have those people coach them as well. Mm. Um, I think that that's where we're going as far as what we want to do with partnerships, but ultimately mm. just, you know, give everyone the tools they might need to, to make sure that they can either get content or get coaching um, or have courses to help them get to either a promotion or just be successful in the world. Yeah. Would you say that you're in the education business or the training business? Um, well, I'm curious what you think the difference is. <laughs> the difference. Well, let me ask you a question. When you were in school, would you have preferred sex education or sex training? <laughs> uh, that's a good analogy. Um, I think uh, in that sense, we're in the education business um because um you know and i'd like to move it more into the training mm -hmm. business because i actually think that's where the rubber meets the road you know where we could you know I, I do cold call review meetings with the folks where they bring recordings of cold calls and we actually listen and, and give you direct feedback on that sort of things and that's to me is like training like you're going to come out of that with tangible things that you can use um but um and the coaching i feel like is a little bit of that as well but um but ultimately, I think it's tough to do that at scale. I yeah. think it's really tough to do it at scale. And so 
inherently, I think we're a bit of an education company right now. I'm curious to know if you find the remote virtual education bordering on training, if that's a barrier, a hindrance or a help? I think it's just what it is now. I think, you know, the education, the, the, the traditional education system, I think, is in a lot of trouble, if, I, if I'm honest with you. You look at companies like Lambda School, which is, you know, and these, and these new income sharing agreements where basically you, you know, the, the model actually makes sense. The traditional model is you get, you know, you pay $100,000 and then you get a degree and then maybe you get a job where Lambda School, for example, says you don't have to pay anything and then we'll give you the training, we'll give you the education. Then when you get a job, you pay us a percentage of that job. Um, and so- Is it like that in Canada? I know it's like that in the States with it's a very expensive to go to college. Is it like that in Canada? Um, it, it's getting more expensive, yeah, but mm. it's not like it is in the States. It is really inhibitive. But I mean, forget Canada. Like with Lambda School, you have uh, this amazing company unlocking talent in Africa, you know, and, and you know, in, in these countries or in cultures that are maybe um, underserved or underprivileged, mm. where you have really smart people that just don't have the access to these kinds of jobs or this kind of knowledge. Mm. And so it's breaking the whole traditional education system where people are like, I don't know if I need to go to school to pay $100,000 and maybe get a job at the end of it when I can go to Lambda school and I can be getting paid $90,000 perhaps in eight months. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to give someone a percentage of my check for the next two years to get yeah. that type of salary. Um, and so I feel like it's just what it is now. Yeah. It's, it, it is digital yeah. and, and, and it's going to be you. like that. I would agree yeah. with you. And, and I think I've noticed the difference now, certainly my, my youngest daughter, she's just going through college and particularly with the pandemic, the, the remote learning it was appalling, absolutely appalling how yep. traditional academia does it versus a business that relies on attention because there's choice. Right. And so, so there's lots of factors. And I, and I, so I would 100% agree with you. I think that certainly for any kind of commercial education around biz, business skills, that the traditional one is just, it's too far removed. The people, the lecturers, professors, you guys call them, um, they're, they're not living it every day. I mean, that's what I love about you guys in SDR Nation is that you're really close to the action. It's not like you're this person who 30 years ago you were in sales and this is how we did it type of thing. It's really, really close right. to, the, to it. And, and I think that's so, so important in a world that's moving fast. It's different, I guess, if you're, if you're teaching history or geography, but um, business is, is going so fast. Uh, a couple of quick questions. I'm just conscious of time um, and, and, I, and I need to let you go. Um, yeah. it's, it's been really interesting talking to you, Charlie. One, one quick question for you is your house is burning down and you have to grab one thing. Uh, your, every, your, your family, if, if you have pets, they're all safe. Um, your, your phone, of course, is safe. <laughs> but if you had time to run back in and grab one thing, what would it be and why? Um, it'd probably be a, a few books. I think that have probably shaped me um, in some different respects. So mm. um, those are things that I, I really value that, um, you know, I go back to that well pretty often. Yeah. And, uh, mm. and so that would be, that would be for me, there's like some fictional books like Papillon, one of my favorite books of all time. Mm. And 
and then there's some um, some great um, leadership books like Turn yeah. the Ship Around, and those would be a few things that I'd probably run back and grab. Would that be your favorite Turn the Ship Around? Would that be if you had one to my, grab yeah. one, would that be it? Yeah, that, like for a leadership book, I mean, and the yeah. Dream Manager, the by Matthew Kelly, um, okay. is one of the best books I've ever read for um, for the leadership style that I employ of helping people realize their dreams rather than. Yeah, yeah. I'm not familiar with it now. I must put it down on the list. Um, dream catcher, you said, is it? The Dream Manager. The Dream Manager. I beg your pardon. The Dream Manager. Yeah, yeah it's a little bit different to the Dream Catcher. <laughs> uh, good <laughs> stuff. Listen, Charlie, I've, I've just, we, we are up against it on time. I need to let you go. I'm so sorry because I really enjoyed talking to you. It's, it's your fascinating insights. Uh, I love what you're doing. So I can only wish you the best of luck with it. And thank you so much for giving up your time to be with me and our listeners today. It was a pleasure, Paul. And I really thank you for having me on here. It was great to get to know you a little bit as well. And um, I really appreciate the opportunity.